Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately, and safely. Six months ago, as Western troops rapidly withdrew, Kabul and soon the rest of Afghanistan fell. In August, Taliban were taking every provinces. We've just heard moments ago that the government in Farah has now surrendered to the Taliban. The terror group had earlier captured the Badghis province. The group's forces gained momentum overnight and claimed parts of the Badakhshan province. But we were so much confident that we didn't think that they will take Kabul. The sudden capture of the country's capital has shocked the world and caused bedlam this morning at the Kabul airport where thousands of Afghans are struggling to get on the next plane out. Those of us who were staying, you know, we got ready for kind of anything really. It could have been all-out warfare. It was so unexpected. Everyone was panicking. The scary part was not knowing what was going to happen. I find it hard to think of really any other story that I've covered where things have changed so quickly, so much for the worse. It's been like six months that I'm at home. I tried to raise my voice in protests. The old Taliban were simply brutal, you know? Now they're not saying anything or beating anyone, but with their eyes, they're eating us. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, being a woman under the new Taliban. Six months ago today, Kabul... Afghanistan's capital city and the last stronghold of the old Afghan government fell to the Taliban. It was a shock to the world, not least, it seemed, to the Taliban. We congratulate the great victory to the whole Afghan nation. We have reached the position which was never expected. The country has changed radically since then. Today, we hear from three witnesses who've watched that happen. The Sunday Times chief international correspondent, Christina Lamb, who's been in and out of Afghanistan for more than three decades, but was still shocked by what she found on her last visit. We'll also hear from a young Afghan woman, a surgeon who once dreamed of opening her own clinic, 
that has now been in hiding for months. But first, meet the Times journalist who stayed in the country when the Taliban seized control and has watched as life there has transformed. I've been in Afghanistan since November 2020. I came here for a month and then just never left. It's quite, uh, it gets under your skin, certainly. That's Charlie Faulkner, who works for the Times in Kabul. My mum asked me a few months ago, you know, why, why are you in Afghanistan? Like, why do you do it? And I think I was actually out on the road at the time, and I just said to her, because it takes your breath away here. The people, the hospitality of, of the Afghans, but the, the landscape is just incredible. I mean, down in the south, you know, it's very much desert and flatland with occasional mountains and the mud houses. But then in the north, it's these sort of snow-capped mountains and lush green fields in the summertime. Charlie, you're unusual in that you're one of the journalists who's been there all the way through. You know, after the Taliban took over, you've carried on living there. What's life been like? What changed for you after August the 15th? So the lead up to August 15th was pretty scary, but I was pretty set in my decision that I was going to stay. And I think of freelance journalists, there was something like just seven or eight of us left here. I was the only woman and I was one of two print journalists. We didn't really know what to expect. No one expected Kabul to fall as quickly as it did. And so those of us who were staying, you know, we got ready for kind of anything, really. It could have been all-out warfare within the city. It could have been really violent looting. But in the end, luckily, it was actually quite anticlimactic. But, you know, the scary part was not knowing what was going to happen. And within a few days, we sort of knew that we were able to at least operate as journalists and that our lives were not in imminent danger, which was interesting because for people outside the country, it took them a few weeks to sort of understand that we weren't in imminent danger. In September, three weeks after the fall, I felt it was really important to get out of Kabul and go and see what was going on in the other provinces. And we were able to access places via road that hadn't had any foreigners there for, for a long, long time. I mean, previously we had to fly everywhere and you sort of look down at the mountains longingly, wishing that you could be in a car travelling through those mountains. I mean, that feels almost sort of counterintuitive here. You know, that's the sort of side we don't hear that maybe in some ways life became a bit more secure, a bit safer for, for people who could travel around the country for the first time. Yes, in some ways. I mean, in the southern province of Kandahar, I went out to districts that had been blocked off from the major cities for a long, long time because of the fighting between the Taliban and the government, but also because of things like the roads being laced with IEDs. I mean, even the road that I travelled along, it was a tarmac road, but it was an absolute awful road to sort of drive along because it had been blown up in so many places. Being able to drive through these remote regions, I mean, I drove right up into the remote districts of, of Helmand, which is a neighbouring province to Kandahar in the south. I went to a district called Sangin, and this is an area of Afghanistan that was considered the most bloody for British forces. They lost the most men here in this district, and it had just been completely obliterated. The market areas and houses had just been completely reduced to rubble. And finally, they were able to start rebuilding again because they knew that for the first time in a long time, there was no threat of an airstrike. And I stayed in a mud house that had actually been 
targeted by an airstrike a few years previously because they had Taliban officials from another province staying there. But they then rebuilt the house and welcomed us very warmly, and myself and the local journalist who I was with. And we got to spend this incredible night there and wake up the next morning in this little village and, and have tea and, and bread at like 5.30, 6am. And, and so there was these huge rebuilding efforts underway in the different districts of Kandahar. But one of the things that we saw, I mean, Kandahar is already a pretty conservative city, but certainly there were less women on the streets in Kandahar, women in a burqa is quite a normal thing to see, even prior to the Taliban. But you would see women on the street. And when I went there in September, you'd hardly see a woman. I even visited a women's market, which was pretty much completely empty, because women were too worried at the time about leaving their houses and, and coming out in public. They, they were worried about what the repercussions might be. It's not the same for everybody, certainly. But what we are hearing definitely is that despite the fact that there's no official policy saying that women should be accompanied by a male relative, there is a matron, within city spaces, within a short distance, Taliban fighters are actually still harassing women for not having a matron. And so, you know, it's making them fearful to leave the house. But I mean, I sat with the spokesman of the Vice and Virtue Ministry. It was a Vice and Virtue Ministry. Yeah, so it's called... I mean, that alone is remarkable. It's called the Ministry for the Propagation of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. So this was one of the most terrifying elements of the Taliban during their previous rule because they would stone women to death who were accused of committing adultery. They would cut off limbs of those who were accused of being thieves. They had public executions in the football stadium in Kabul. I actually spent a few days with the ministry last week and they're really pushing to show that they have reformed and they're not taking the same hardline approach and that they are no longer responsible for doling out punishments. But it's still a government department that, you know, really instills fear in people. So the Taliban reinstated this ministry quite swiftly after the fall of Kabul and it actually replaced the Ministry of Women's Affairs so there is now no sort of representation for the legal rights of women within Afghanistan. Instead, this ministry is in place. Charlie, tell us a bit about some of the protests, because we've started seeing pictures here of women out on the streets in Kabul, which just seems incredibly brave, given the risks they must be taking, but going out and protesting for their rights. There's been protests happening since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. And they, we saw particularly in September that the response was pretty violent. I mean, they beat up local journalists who were trying to cover the protest. And they, this sort of protest effort re-erupted again in January. And I was actually here uh, and I was able to cover one of these protests. There was maybe sort of 30 or so women who were there and... It was quite an incredible sight. I mean, the Taliban did let them protest, even though they've made uh, protests illegal. They did let them sort of march along the way for a little while. But they, you know, one of the security forces, he was actually pepper spraying women straight in the face. And actually he got me and my colleague really deliberately aiming this burning liquid into the women's faces. And what was even more interesting is that he was behaving horrendously, but some of the other security forces were telling him not to do that. I mean, at one point, another of his colleagues actually pulled him away and removed him to the back of the group of women. 
to get out so that he would stop spraying them with with this pepper spray. And that's also quite worrying, you know, this this like different behaviour. You never know what to expect. And that's pretty unnerving. It was quite inspiring to watch these young women call for their rights. You know, at the moment, girls beyond grade 12 still can't go to school in most places around the country. Women have been blocked from going to work or it's been made significantly difficult for them to go to work. And they're saying, what is our future in this country if you're not going to allow us an education or, or to be able to have a career? Since that protest, however, so three and a half weeks ago, two of the women who were part of that protest were detained by what appeared to be armed Taliban, according to witnesses who saw them enter one of the ladies' apartments. So the two ladies and three of their relatives were arrested. And then a couple of weeks later, there's been two more female activists that have been detained. Those women who go out and, and protest are incredibly brave. And a lot of those women who were involved in the protest last month, they're now in hiding, absolutely terrified. Hello? Hi, this is Manveen from, from The Times in London. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I am uh, so glad that you're uh, talking to me to hear about Afghanistan situation and especially women here. Thank you so much. I managed to get through to one of the female protesters who's currently in hiding. For her safety, we won't use her name. Where are you now, roughly? Now, in these days, I am at home. I'm not working outside. Most of the time, we're not going out, except for when we need some groceries or goods for our house. In the first protests, I was also a member of the people who were protesting. That's why my husband is so much afraid of me going out. My husband was afraid that they might catch you also and maybe put you in jail or something. Once I was not at home, fortunately, they came searching for me. And they asked from our neighbors some information. And they were also asking my name. That's why we had to change our house. We had a rented house, but now we came to one of our relatives' house. We thought that it would be a better idea to come here and hide ourselves. And what was your life like before? I mean, take me right back. I know you're, you're 26, so you've lived under the Taliban before. What was that like? When I was a child, it was like five or six years of my childhood that they ruled over Afghanistan. You know, then women were like slaves and women were treated like goods. They didn't have their own right to speak or to choose something. When Taliban lost control, when the Hamid Karzai became our president, everything changed and I started going to school and my family 
my father got a job and we found a house and you know a lot of NGOs um, started their work and they are giving a woman priority to work here and everyone was so happy and they thought that they might get a second chance I mean, some of the rules and regulations of the Taliban were still applied on our schools. But we finished school. After school, I was a bright student, so I got admission to a medical college. And it was my dream to become a doctor and serve my country as a doctor. It's amazing that you were able to, to train as a doctor and for surgery in particular. What happened in August, after the Taliban took over, how did your life change? It was so unexpected. One day we woke up and I wanted to go somewhere. Someone from our local shop told me that, Sister, where are you going? I said that I have to go and get to my job. He said that, no, don't go. Taliban are all over the place. Everyone was panicking, uh, me and uh, my other colleagues were so much afraid that two or three days we were at home and we didn't want to go back. But after that, our trainers and teachers called us that it's okay. They're not harming anyone. You can come to your work. But when I went to my work, they had their own rules and regulations. Like you cannot work with male uh, colleagues in one operation flutter and anyone who travels or is getting a taxi should have mm, their male chaperone or mahram with uh, with her and also they were interrupting in our uh, work and job so much that's why i couldn't continue um, going to work so i went back and i saw the situation there and i thought with myself that i cannot continue like this So me and a lot of our teachers, they left work. It's been like six months that I'm at home. I try to raise my voice also in protests. Most of my friends are missing and we're posting everywhere that anyone who has information about them, anything. I mean, the question is, what is the country going to look like for women in the near future. At the moment, it doesn't look particularly optimistic. That was Charlie Faulkner again. Coming up, we'll hear more from the young doctor and the Sunday Times chief international correspondent, Christina Lamb, tells us why her last trip to Afghanistan was so much worse than anything she's ever witnessed before. But first... A word from one of my colleagues. Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerins, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. My name is Christina Lam. I'm the Chief Foreign Correspondent of the Sunday Times. I've been covering Afghanistan for about 33 years. I first went there when I was starting as a foreign correspondent and when the Russians had occupied Afghanistan and Afghan Mujahideen were fighting to try and oust them. A lot has happened in Afghanistan in those in those decades. Most recently, in August, we saw the entire country going back into Taliban control. I know you've been back there twice since then. Tell us a bit about those visits. So the first time I went after they'd taken over was the beginning of September, a couple of weeks after they'd seized power. It was pretty shocking going back. I find it hard to think of really any other story that I've covered where things have changed so quickly, so much for the worse, so dramatically. Almost everybody that I knew, and as I said, I've gone back and forth for so many years, almost everyone I knew was either in hiding or had fled the country or trying to flee. And there were Taliban everywhere. The streets were otherwise pretty empty. Things were closed. Everybody was sort of shocked at what had happened and wondering what it all meant. So it was quite traumatic, really. And your most recent visit, you've just come back now, you said Afghanistan was the worst you've seen it in 35 years. What made you say that? So this time arriving back, it it sort of looked more normal in a way because there was much more traffic and shops and things were open and there was more life going on. Hi, lovely. One of the things I didn't say about before was, of course, there were almost no women to be seen. This time there was a 
a few more women out and about, but not many. And the first thing you see that is so different going back is there are just so many beggars everywhere. There were always people begging, but it was a few children and elderly people. Now there are many people, many different ages. And that is a reflection of just how terrible and how desperate the situation is. Normally, when you are a foreign correspondent, you go to some crisis, it's kind of one thing. It's a war or a famine or a flood Mm. or something, some disaster. This is everything at once. You've got the worst drought that the country's had in almost 40 years, so most of the harvest has failed. You've got a bitterly cold winter, sub-zero temperatures as low as minus 16 in Kabul when I was there. You also have a country that's very much weakened by 40 years of war. So lots of people who are widowed, who are living precariously, who have lost limbs, have been injured in some way or other. One of the poorest countries on earth anyway. And then on top of that, this literally overnight economic implosion when the Taliban took over, the foreign troops and all the foreign agencies just and diplomats and things left pretty much overnight. And that has brought a shuddering halt to the economy because Afghanistan, 75% of its budget came from foreign aid. That all just stopped. It goes all through society. It's not just the poorest people. It's also middle-class people who had a a pretty comfortable life before. I met one family where the father worked for the Human Rights Commission. His son was a prosecutor, his daughter-in-law was the manager of a translation agency. They had a comfortable life and he went out to restaurants and things. And suddenly all of them lost their jobs at once without any warning. And for any of us to suddenly lose your job without any expectation of that would be really traumatic. But when the whole family loses them at once and there's no prospect of anything else, it's a, a total disaster. And so it's hard to see any hope anywhere. People are just living really in a desperate situation. One family that I went to, the situation was so desperate. They had sold their eight-year-old daughter, Fatima, in order to try and buy food for their others a couple of months ago and sold her for 150,000 Pakistani rupees, which is about the equivalent to 630 pounds. And when you say selling their daughters, I mean, what exactly does that mean? I mean, are they being sold into marriage? Is that what's happening? So, I mean, the first thing to say is this is not something new, sadly, in Afghanistan. I mean, people do sell their daughters. Sometimes it's to resolve feuds between different families or tribes and that the daughter is handed over as if she's some kind of, you know, chattel. But in this case, this is because of desperation to buy food. And what I would say is different now is it the scale in which it's happening. It, it's so many families having to do it. And this family I'm telling you about, the day that I went there, they had actually tried to sell their three-month-old baby daughter as well because they just couldn't see where to buy things from. I mean, they said they didn't know what else to do because otherwise they were all starved to death. And that's the kind of choice, you know, people are are being faced with. 
that's what's different about this situation. Normally, if harvest had failed, people would try and find some kind of labor work, day work that, you know, be something. But now there's nothing because there's no work. Nobody has anything. And even the people who are still working are mostly not getting paid because there's been no money to pay people for months. At the moment, this country is a pariah state. No one in the world recognizes the Taliban government. It's even worse than when they were in power before, and they had three countries recognizing them. And as I said, they are totally desperate for foreign help. Their reserves, about $9.5 billion in assets, have all been frozen. So there's no money coming into the country. The banks can't operate and they need that. So are they kind of being a bit vague about women's rights and whether girls are going back to school and what's going to happen because they're trying to get that or have they actually changed? We just, we don't know. I mean, is it just time? Do we just have to accept that we now have to deal with the Taliban? I mean, I understand that it is unpalatable dealing with a regime that took power by force, that the international community has been fighting for the last 20 years, that represents a lot of things that we find anathema. But the humanitarian situation surely has to be the most important thing of all. It helps nobody in Afghanistan if we're letting women die and children starve. It feels like at the moment... This was a humiliating defeat for NATO forces to lose to the Taliban. And it feels like we are punishing the Afghan population for that, the people that are completely innocent. And I I just find that really shocking. The Taliban, like it or not, are the government now. And it's a landlocked country to fly things in to have permissions to import medicines, to do all of that, to move things around. You have to have some kind of interaction with the Taliban. Of course, I don't think we should be like handing over the aid to the Taliban to distribute, but we unfortunately going to have to engage with them in some way. There isn't any alternative at the moment. And in terms of an alternative, I mean, has the Taliban now just taken over the whole of the country? Is there any sense of, you know, are there pockets of resistance? Is anybody putting up an opposition? The Taliban control the whole country. Really, the only, interestingly, the only resistance now to the Taliban is provided by women. It's these few brave protesters that come out in the streets, and it's also girls going secretly to school. So last week, I went to a couple of rooms in a uh, district in Kabul where a group of about 25 girls are coming every afternoon aged 9 to 16 and and having lessons. You know, they're taking a huge risk if they were caught, the Taliban could arrest them all. Although, I mean, the one thing is, because the Taliban have been a little vague this time about their policies, the girls told me they would say to the Taliban, well, we don't know. We didn't know it wasn't allowed. And they also say, you know, education is not a crime. And it's not, right? It's a right. 
it is so courageous. I mean, we see pictures sometimes on social media here of the women who are going out in the streets of Kabul and actually protesting. Those women are so brave. It was scary because as we knew from the previous era of Taliban that uh, they would beat women, we accepted being beaten up by them. But what we didn't expect was uh, being kidnapped by them. Uh, some girls, they disappeared and nobody knows about them. And uh, Taliban also refused uh, to take the responsibility and claims they say that it's not us. But everyone knows. It makes me so much angry. You are now pregnant. I mean, how much do you worry about the future your baby will be born into? To be honest, uh, I want to give birth to my baby uh, somewhere outside Afghanistan. And um, I would ask anyone who can help Afghans to take their hands in this situation. Maybe someday uh, we can repay that. But please help Afghans who are in need. And that's my message to the world. Over the weekend, the four detained women protesters were released by the Taliban after they'd been missing for weeks. But then two more were detained on Sunday night and others remain missing. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Sunday Times Chief International Correspondent, Christina Lamb, Times Journalist in Kabul, Charlie Faulkner, and a very courageous doctor in Afghanistan. You can read more of Christina and Charlie's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.